Welcome to Demand and Disrupt the Disability Podcast. Here, we will learn to advocate for ourselves and each other. This podcast is supported with funds from the Advocato Press based in Louisville, Kentucky. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Demand and Disrupt a Disability Podcast. I am Kimberly Parsley, and I'm here with Lisa McKinley. Hey, Lisa, how are you doing? Good. How are you today? I'm doing very well. We had uh, Thanksgiving was recently. We're recording this the week after Thanksgiving. So how was Thanksgiving for you? Thanksgiving was really good. I I actually, a few weeks before Thanksgiving, I started making a country music gratitude playlist. Wow, you got real into it. Yeah, I got into (laughs) it because I'm like, you know, when the time comes, since I'm going to be hosting it, I'm not going to be feeling that grateful in the moment when I'm trying to clean the house and cook the food. So if I have something to listen to, to remind me of why I'm grateful for these people in my life, it will help. And it did. It did when I was down there scrubbing the floor, listening to, you know, my country music. It was great. That is an awesome idea. That really is. So I got to know what, what's your number one most gratitude inducing song? Okay. There's this I, I hope this is new. real it's, embarrassing. It's probably not that new. I think it came out in June, but for me, I don't listen to newer country music, but it's called Bigger Houses by Dan and Shay. Um, it basically says love don't live in bigger houses, but it's about keeping up in, with the Joneses and not trying to keep up with the Joneses and how, you know, it's family is what matters. Oh, uh-huh. It's a That's good song, all? but I know you're not a country person, a uh, country music fan, are you? Not so much. No, not. I used to be, you know, um, I like classic country. Um, See, and it's got that, it's got that classic country feel to it. It's, it's at first when I heard it, I thought it was Rascal Flats, and it wasn't. So, and they were, old, they were more a long time. Well, not a long time, but. Okay. When I say classic country, I am talking about. <laughs> Hank Williams Sr. and Patsy Cline sort of situation. And Waylon and Jennings. There you go. Baby's got her blue jeans on, right? The twangier, the better. That's the kind of country music that I I like that too. I have a a classic (laughs) country music playlist. I have a playlist for everything you can think of. I have a road trip playlist. I have a exercise playlist, everything. That's awesome. Now, so how do you make your playlist? Do you do you have like do you subscribe to like Apple Music or Spotify? How do you do that? I subscribe to Amazon Music and then I just <laughs> use the uh, Alexa device to make the playlist. That's how I do it too. I have a Christmas playlist. I just realized that, but I honestly I think Ian created it for me. So <laughs> um that's cool. That that is cool that that worked for you. I can see how that music is very powerful in that. It is. And and so it helped with Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving was really great. We had um, my mom came and stayed with me for the week and we had my in-laws and and my brother and sister-in-law and my sister and my sister and her husband. So another brother-in-law. So and I made turkey and dumplings and mashed potatoes and green beans and then I had others bring sides and it was just, oh, we were so full. How was your Thanksgiving? That sounds wonderful. That sounds so good. It was very low key. We just had uh, my mom and stepfather 
came over and hung out. We, because I can't escape drama, apparently it, <laughs> it follows me around everywhere. Um, so we didn't do Turkey this year. Cause we're just, we're just like, nah, you know, I don't think so. So we did chicken pot pie. Oh my um, goodness. I'm jealous. That's one of my favorite foods and nobody in my house likes it. Oh, that's a shame. Michael, Michael does most of our cooking and he makes awesome chicken pot pie. And, um, we were making two of them. We, we make two chicken pot pies. And I said, I said, well, Hey, you know, I was feeling all superior and I was like, um, you know, Hey, we, we are not responsible for killing a turkey this year. Go us. And Ian, my smart aleck son said, yeah, but we killed two chickens. I was like, <laughs> well, crap. That's true. We did. We so two souls out of this world. instead of I know one. instead of one. Right. I know. Um, and when you say it like that now, I feel guilty. Um, but the chicken <laughs> pot pie was really good. And we, we did uh, mashed potatoes and all the stuff, except, and here's, here's the drama. So I'm back in the back of the house and I come in <clears throat> and I hear, I, I walk in the kitchen and I hear Ian say, um, should we tell mom about this? <laughs> and oh, I, said, no. <laughs> I said, yes, you should. What is going on? And Michael said, well, I think the oven may have, well, I think it a little bit maybe blew up or, or caught on fire. And, I, <laughs> no. and because I'm excellent in a crisis. Okay. I am nothing if not good in a crisis. I'm like, okay. And so I turned to Ian. I said, Ian, your father is prone to exaggeration. Was it that bad? And Ian said, it looked like the oven was going to birth a star. I love that. So I, I, so we spent Black Friday shopping online for ovens, but Michael watched a YouTube video. So, you know, now he's an expert. And apparently when a heating element goes out in an oven, it can, it can do it rather spectacularly. And so Michael spent 40 bucks, got a heating element, watched a YouTube video and fixed the oven. So. Right. Um, that is so much cheaper. So much and I'm cheaper. I'm going to say that if you really had to have purchased a new oven, it would have been really sad because they were all on sale the week before. Uh, right. People could cook turkeys. Right. Yeah. Because that's how things go. But it ended up we didn't have to. And my mom only lives like three or so minutes, you know, from my house. So we like carted these uh, uh, uncooked chicken pot pies to her house and she cooked them in her oven and brought them back over here and it, it worked out okay. It, it, it did. We were calm about it except for, you know, the whole, I don't know, black hole event going on in the kitchen. Um, so yeah, but so that's the thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have, Next. I, get, I don't have anything like that. Everything is still functioning at our house. <laughs> So, you know what I think this means is that that next year I'm coming to your house. I think you should just have me come to your house with your gratitude playlist and it'll be fine. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's a plan. <laughs> um, so now for more serious stuff, I, I um, was looking at uh, our guest today on, on the podcast is David Allgood. He's the director of advocacy for the Center for Accessible Living in Louisville. And so I was looking up some legislative stuff. That's a lot of his, his bailiwick, what he does. And there is a bipartisan bill in the United States Senate to change the amount of money 
that people can have in their savings account when applying for SSI uh, from $2,000, which was when it was made in like, I don't know, the, the last law was updated in like 1998 to $10,000. And I know this is something that, that you've felt passionate about in the, yes, in the past. About, uh, yeah, it's about time. That's what I have to say on that. It's about time, don't you think? I do. I do. Um, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, people need support. Scott, being disabled is expensive. It is. You know, uh, hearing aids, wheelchairs, computers for blind people, all the stuff. And that's not even talking about the attendant medical issues that usually arise. Um, I mean, it is expensive and just that $2,000, it's basically to keep us impoverished. Exactly. And I, I believe that. And, and not to mention if for some reason you were to get a little more money one month and you accidentally go over 2000, it's a whole process. They cut off your check. You have to you have to well i had to go before a judge to plead my case why i needed to get the money back because i accidentally it was when i was young and i didn't know any better and i deposited money from my college residual check and went over the balance and then they stopped my ssi checks yeah um they stopped mine when i got married because we made a whole whopping i something like $12,000 a year for two people. And that was way too much money yeah. for me to keep getting, you know, it's just an effort to keep people impoverished and it's, uh, it's garbage. It really is. So, you know, I hope, uh, I hope this, I hope this bill in the Senate has legs. I, I hope people will do the right thing or, uh, elected officials will do the right thing and quit trying to treat all disabled people like we we ought to be grateful for every crumb and that we're you know a burden on society that kind of thing so and we're gonna talk with david allgood and he he deals uh more with the state and local side of things but he has lots of good good ideas for ways that we can we can advocate for ourselves and for each other which is you know kind of my thing with this podcast so are you ready I'm, for us I'm, to? Yes, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say. All right, here we go. This is my interview with David Allgood. And welcome everyone to Demand and Disrupt, a disability podcast. I am here today with David Allgood. And David is the Director of Advocacy for the Center for Accessible Living in Louisville. Hey, David, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Kimberly. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. So tell me about what you do as director of advocacy. Well, I uh, advocate for people with disabilities, particularly for keeping people with disabilities in the community or a setting of their choice as independent as possibly that they can be. And I spend a lot of time in Frankfurt with our elected officials trying to uh, sponsor good bills that, well, I would say sponsor, encourage and support helpful bills for the disability community. We do have, we have introduced several bills over the years. Uh, I've been there over 20 plus years, almost 25 years. And 
then we try to fight bills that might be have a negative impact to the disability community in Kentucky. So uh, I serve on a lot of boards, committees, and commissions. Uh, I, I'm, I reside in Louisville, and I serve on several committees and organizations and groups uh, in Louisville. And also I'm on four governor-appointed state boards that basically impact people statewide on those groups. So I uh, spend a lot of time dealing with those issues and, you know, a lot of different myriad of aspects about community. We've sponsored many bills locally with parking issues. Uh, I'm very fortunate enough to be able to drive an accessible vehicle and it has a side loading ramp. And we have had a lot of issues with parking and being trapped outside of your van when you come out of a store and there's a car parked in the stripe line. Uh, we sponsored a lot of bills in the past that tried to address this, but we still have a way to go. We've done it locally. And we've also had a lawsuit against the largest urology group here and I think it's in the state and also in Louisville about uh, not a good access for people with disabilities and the practice group and the Center for Accessible Living and myself were uh, part of that class action suit that we did settle. And we hope that we re result in better access for all people with disabilities to those doctor's offices. But we also deal with access issues. If you can't get in a building, you know, what can we do to try to rectify that problem? You know, we have the ADA now and we do a lot of systems advocacy. We also do a lot of self-advocacy. People will call me with uh, housing issues or parking problems or other things that we try to resolve. We do a lot of referring to local, state, or federal agencies that might be able to assist the disability community throughout Kentucky and in Louisville as well. So it's a number of different avenues that we take when trying to advocate for people with disabilities in Kentucky and, and local municipalities. So we just do a lot of different things, but we're mainly about trying to bring inclusive atmospheres for those of us with disabilities so that we can fully participate in our communities in a productive and meaningful manner to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you say that was a neurology practice? Urology. Urology, okay. Isn't it strange that the places that ought to be the most accessible are oftentimes the least accessible. Like the places you almost say you ought to know better, you know, they ought to know better. You would um, hope so. And like I said, one of our advocates that we deal with is she really brought the suit because she went, she's a paraplegic and couldn't really access some of the equipment. And I go to the same urology provider and none of the examining tables in the office, the little, Offices, uh, there's very rarely have ever been any doctor's office in the 41 years I've been in a wheelchair where there's been an accessible exam table. So uh, that's a huge effort that we're still trying to resolve. And it's a, it's a nationwide issue that uh, people are addressing and talking about and have been for years. Yeah, I think I've probably said on this uh, podcast before, I, I never feel as disabled as when I go into a healthcare setting. You know, Absolutely. Uh, it, it's 
it's, and I've talked to other people who are blind. It's like, why is there so much stuff in the hallway in an ophthalmology office? And it's true. It's like, you can't, I just went yesterday with my daughter and there, it was like all these turns and twists and there were chairs out in the hallway and everything. It's like, are you just trying to trip us up? Is that what's happening here? It's uh yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, they just, it's not a very welcoming environment. Then you have a ton of paperwork. And if you don't have somebody with you or you don't have good writing skills or ability to write, then that's even more of a barrier. So it's it can be a challenging and a discouraging, uh, unfortunate event that you have to do on you know, a lot of times throughout the year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the front line of that. We uh, we appreciate it. We really do. So. um Kentucky has a biannual general assembly system. Is that right? That's correct. So, so are you gearing up to, uh, to tackle that and legislate tackle legislation and things starting, I guess, in January? We have, and we are, um, we, of course the general assembly meets every year. And then one year is a, what they call the short session or 30 days where they do try to get a lot of bills in a short period of time. And, Every other year is the long session or 60-day session where they do the budget. So every two years, they'll do the budget. And that's what will be occurring this session, starting in January and then probably ending in early March. And this is where they're going to basically make the budget for the next two years for the state of the Commonwealth. And we, uh, I've been working in conjunction, also I serve on the uh, Commonwealth Council on Development of Disabilities. I was the chair and I'm the vice chair. And there's uh, some good people that have worked there, the new director, Johnny Caleb's, and uh, the policy director, Justin Jeter. And we've been making a lot of appointments in the interim. And the interim is the time between when the General Assembly ends and they pick back up around April or May and meet monthly and we've been meeting with a lot of legislators on issues, but in particular, you know, really three big issues. Uh, one is custodial rights. Right now in Kentucky, mainly for intellectual development and disabilities, your parental rights can be terminated just because you have a disability, not because you're abusive or neglectful, but because you have a disability, you know, you can be have your parental rights uh, terminated or uh, not fully enforced. And we are wanting to change that. The number of states have done that. And we are looking and have been met with a lot of different legislators throughout the last five months, perhaps, and discuss these issues with them. That's one of the issues we've discussed. And we've got a sponsor now and a draft bill. So well, that's great. Mm-hmm. We've spoken to a number of legislators, and for the most part, uh, they've been receptive. And I think, and I, I'm, I shouldn't say this, but I think that we have a good chance of getting it passed this year. And I've said that before in the past on bills, and it's not happened. And it's, you know, the average piece of legislation takes about five years. So we've been working on this, will be our third year. But I really. Mm-hmm feeling kind of encouraged about the bill this year and hopefully it will come to fruition and we won't have to deal with this archaic uh, bill that's been around for I don't know how long but 
really needs to be changed. And uh, we're also dealing with a subminimum wage mm -hmm. with this one. Probably working on this one for six or seven years. And um, we've tried different approaches. It's basically, you know, sheltered workshops here in Kentucky can pay uh, someone with a disability a quarter an hour, a dollar an hour. I know that their um, their production rate is not as up to speed or as par as their non-disabled peers or some of their less severely disabled peers, but it's just uh, just seems not right to a lot of us that uh, people with disabilities can be paid a very, very low wage, way below subminimum or below minimum wage to perform uh, some jobs. So we've been working. We had a legislator for years that was trying. And when he got on traction, then he resigned and went down to Tennessee. But we have uh, some sponsors this year for another bill. We're giving it a shot. And what we really want to try to do is just, you know, at first we were trying to do away with shelter workshops uh, because we just didn't think they were integrated enough. But uh, we understand that some people with disabilities and particularly their family members, this is the only opportunity that some of them get to get out of their household or the environment, uh, maybe a group setting and where they can go and interact with other individuals. And so we really don't want to jeopardize that, but we do want to improve the quality of working conditions for those and particularly when it comes to wages. And so we just really want to bring about a gradual increase in the to make your son pay the minimum wage to those individuals. And uh, so we don't want to, uh, again, jeopardize some of the standing uh, opportunities that these people have, the people with disabilities. So we just want to bring the wage up to a livable, and I don't really don't think the minimum wage is a livable wage, but uh, for those of us with disabilities that we should be able to afford the basic respect and rights as any other working class individual. So we're going to try that. This has been a, a ongoing process and our sponsor, one of the main supporters is going to retire or not run, should I say for next, she's going to come back to Louisville and uh, we have another sponsor or supporter and hopefully they can get some traction, but I, I just don't know how, well, that's going to go over. We're not going to stop, though. We're going to continue to do that. You know, you never know what can happen in Frankfurt. But we are trying to get a bill that would uh, raise it to minimum wage and make sure that they have the opportunity to make a uh, living, living wage. Excellent. Wait. Those are those are both issues we've talked about here on the podcast before. Actually, our uh, the parental rights issue we talked about in our last episode, episode twenty. So um, go back and listen uh, to that uh, to our listeners. So um, for those who aren't familiar with the term sheltered workshop, can you um, briefly just tell us what what is meant by that term? Um, yes, it's um, when. Uh, there are certificates that were granted by the federal government to en enable employers to employ people with disabilities, particularly veterans that were coming back from World War II and World War I, really, and uh, enable them to 
have the opportunity to work. But again, their production rate was not as well, wasn't as good as other individuals. So uh, they got low, lower wages paid to them. So, um, and they've been able to continue to do this. They do a lot of piece work, you know, putting boxes together or putting materials into boxes and shipping them out to different companies like that. But uh, we've not been issued any new um, certificates in quite some time. And a lot of the federal governments or the federal government is doing away with it uh, completely. I think in the next couple of years, they probably will try to be making an effort to eliminate them nationwide. But it's where um, individuals are able to make um, some and some shelter workshops are the the people who are in charge of those make a decent income, a decent living, but they are providing some opportunities for people with disabilities, but still it's somewhat segregated and um, not as inclusive as we would like to see it for people with disabilities to go out and work with their disabled and non-disabled peers and make a a livable wage so it's a it's an environment where we think it's just um, not as conducive to a full inclusive opportunity for people with disabilities and we want to see that uh, changed okay great thanks for that thanks for that so to your knowledge is there any legislation coming up that might be harmful for people with disabilities uh, we are, waivers are something that we are continuing to look at and address. That's another issue that when we've met on these numerous occasions with our legislators over the uh, last four or five months that we've talked about, you know, there's 12,000 plus people on waiver waiting lists, uh, Sports for Community Living, Michelle P., uh, the acquired brain injury and the home and community-based service waiver. And these are all waivers that keep people in the community and give them much more control over how they control their lives and their attendance and their care and where they live. But again, we have 12,000 plus people on those waiting lists. Some of them have been on there for 20 years or more. And so we are wanting to get that addressed. And right now, actually, we're asking people to really call their legislators between now and December 7th. And um, if you are on a waiver or if you're waiting for a waiver, or if you know someone that can benefit from a waiver, convey that with your legislator to let them know what the issue is and that there is a tremendous waiting list for those individuals to try to access those services. And so if you can call uh, up there that would be great to talk to your legislators and this is where it's really important going off a little bit here but if you are a person with disability you really need to be registered to vote and if you don't vote um, your legislators can easily look that up and if you haven't voted in the last two elections I'm not saying that they don't but there's really not a big effort for them to um listen to you because you know that they they know that you won't be out there voting so that you can't hire or fire them so it's really important for those of us who want to make a change 
to be registered to vote and to vote so that they can say you have a record of voting. That's interesting. I was just talking uh, with someone um, this week who said that her son is something like number 7,000 on the Michelle P waiver waiting list. And he will, he will age out uh, of that system before he receives those services. Um, yes. I mean, literally a lot of people will pass away before they'd ever become eligible to receive those services. And so when we have aging caregivers and aging parents, that have been saving the state a tremendous amount of money, billions and billions of dollars. And when they can't take care of those individuals anymore, where are they going to go? But into maybe a nursing home or an institution where it's probably about $63,000 a year for a nursing home and up to $200,000 a year for one person in an institution. Whereas if we were trying to address the situation now with better funding opportunities for these waivers, we could create an environment, get better providers and a broader provider network to help these people stay in the community at about a third of the cost of what it's going to cost for nursing home or institutional care. So right. you would think that that would be uh, something that they would want to be looking into strongly, and hopefully they might do that. Okay. Okay. So um, if you're in that situation, everyone call your your uh, state representative right you're um yes for the for state state government and and so what i'm hearing you saying is that no matter how irritated you get at the voting process then just keep going and voting and putting up with the uh less than stellar circumstance right <laughs> yes absolutely even if you if you run into issues when you are voting protection and advocacy and I don't have the number now. I'm sorry about that. But uh, they have an 800 number on the day oh. of voting. If you've experienced problems the day of voting, you can call an 800 number for protection and advocacy, and they will look into that issue and try to get that resolved. And protection and advocacy is a organization that helps people with disabilities stay you know, in the community, and particularly when it comes to voting issues, look into that. And you think you've been discriminated against or not had the fair and free opportunity to uh, cast your ballot. So we can always contact them, but yes, it, it can be a frustrating, but there is federal protection called the HAVA Act or Helping America Vote Act that was passed after the 2000 election and some of those issues. So there are federal you know, guidelines that the poll workers and the county clerks are supposed to be following so that it can be as uh, inclusive and pain-free and barrier-free for people with disabilities to vote. So, pain. That's what I felt. Pain. It was go. emotional pain that I felt last time, but I wish I had, uh, I wish I'd had the number. I could have, I could have called protection and advocacy and uh, yeah. Well, so, well, but next time that's what I'll do. And I may put that number in the show notes then so people can just hang well, on to yeah, it for yeah. next time. So in general, how do you feel about the environment for local and state governments right now as it relates to people with disability? Um, I think there are some good issues and there are some not so good issues. I think that, I mean, I think it's really imperative 
and important for people with disabilities to get to know their local and state and sometimes federal officials, either be elected or your county attorney or your inspection permit license person or whomever it might be, parking enforcement. If there's an issue that isn't negatively impacting you in your town, then it's up to you to get to the mayor or the county commissioner or our, you know, we have Metro Council individuals. I know mine very well, and I keep up the speed on what the issues are, but I really make myself known to those individuals. I mean, I, again, I'm going up to Frankfurt for the last almost 20 years. Uh, a lot of we have a lot of new legislators and, and legislators and but you know I make myself known and try to introduce myself to them and to be a resource for them. And I think it's imperative as us as people with disabilities throughout the Commonwealth to let our local officials know that you know I'm, I'd like to go down here and spend my money at the store, but I can't because the sidewalk is busted up or the tree root is you know busted up the sidewalk and I can't get through now or of course this is a huge effort in a rural state like Kentucky I've got no transportation well affordable accessible transportation to get from you know point A to point B and so that way without the transportation I can't get a job you know I can't get out in the community and spend money for the local businesses to keep you know them going so I think it's a it's a huge imperative issue that we get out and make our issues and our voices known to our elected officials or the other individuals that take care or have a say in how our infrastructure is designed and maintained. And so, you know, we have to let them know what the issues are. If you don't have, again, I use a wheelchair. If someone doesn't use a wheelchair, they may not know some of the issues of the you know, using cobblestones or brick sidewalk versus a concrete and how much better concrete is than, you know, brick what might be. Or if I can't get up that one little three-inch step, you know, they have no problem because they're ambulatory and can walk, but I cannot get into that building because of that three-inch step sometimes. But they may not think about that. But in, until we get out there and let them know and educate them about the issues that are negatively impacting our quality of life and ability to participate in our communities, then we're going to continue getting what we're getting. So it's up for us to go out there and be a vocal member. And like I say, a lot of these, uh, particularly the elected officials, once you help them with some information, uh, they will come back to you time and time again. They may not always give you the answer or sometimes vote the way that you want to. But a lot of times they may do that because you're considered a now a trusted source. So I, you know, I tell you to get out and introduce yourself to them and let them get to know you. But again, one thing we always say is if they ever ask you a situation, a question or a situation and you don't know the answer, don't make something up Just say, you know what, I'm not sure. And I'll get back with you and make sure that you do get back with them, but never make anything up. Uh, on the spot and sometimes you know people do that when you're on the spot you'll say what you think they want to hear but just say that you're not sure but you'll get back with them but it's just imperative for us to get out there and and meet those individuals that have the power 
to make things better for us uh, as a as the largest minority in Kentucky and the largest minority in America, and that's people with disabilities. The work never ends, but the reward is worth it. We just we just keep keep doing the work. And uh, David Allgood, thank you so much for talking with me today, and thank you for uh, doing the work as director of advocacy for the Center for Accessible Living. Thank you so much, David. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like the podcast, remember to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you really like the podcast, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps more people to find us. If you really, really like the podcast, then please tell someone about it, either in person or send them an email or just share the link on social media. Thank you all. Every bit helps and it makes a huge difference for us. If you'd like a transcript, please send us an email to demandanddisrupt at gmail.com and put transcript in the subject line. Thanks to Steve Moore for helping us out with transcripts. Thanks to Chris Unkin for our theme music. Demand and Disrupt is a publication of the Advocado Press with generous support from the Center for Accessible Living located in Louisville, Kentucky. And you can find links to buy the book, A Celebration of Family, Stories of Parents with Disabilities, in our show notes. Thanks, everyone. You say you've seen a change in me Just for once I think I would agree
Spells out the 